So, I've had weird dreams. I've had lucid dreams. I've had dreams where I am in my 20s, but have apparently been enrolled in high school the entire time since I left, and am failing all of my classes. I even have reoccurring dreams where I live through different zombie apocalypse scenarios. <laughs> One time, I followed a French parkour fanatic through a series of parking garages to evade a horde of zombies. One time, I was saved from starving to death slash being eaten in an attic by a SWAT team. Probably most memorably, though, I once dreamed that, uh, after being cornered by two hot zombies, they kindly offered to turn me so no one would try to eat my brains. I woke up just as one sank his teeth into my arm. Hmm. So dreams are weird. <laughs> you know that. I don't know why I dream about zombies or neon circus animals or folding sheets. Brains do weird shit when they shut down for the night. I think it's become a bit passe to use dreams as narrative devices these days. Even fantasy, previously the realm of the very important dream, has more or less abandoned the trope. But long, long before anyone decided dreaming about important plot points was cringe, you know who loved a good symbolic dream? You guessed it. The Mesopotamians! They sure heckin' loved a good dream, folks. It makes sense. People still love to interpret dreams today. And it is only in the last hundred-ish years that we've begun to explain away zombies and disappointed govicon teachers and missed flights with cold, hard science. To someone who understood the world to be rich in mystical symbolism and not firing neurons, a dream, any dream, would have held potent meaning. The Epic of Gilgamesh is rife with dreams and terrible nightmares, too. I think that it is a deeply Mesopotamian thing, this reliance and yet distrust of dreams. As many times as Gilgamesh uses a dream as a guide or seeks answers about a dream from another, he is just as likely to believe in the symbolism as he is to completely dismiss it or even intentionally misunderstand it. Dreams like the gods he interacts with so casually are useful and useless. This is in line with so much of the epic's core themes, as well as what makes it so hard for modern readers to pin down. We want to put it in a box labeled superstitious ancient shit that one college professor made me read. But it just won't fit. As much as we want to believe that Gilgamesh is a stuffy old poem about right versus wrong, nature versus civilization, gods versus men, mortality versus the impossibility of immortality, it's simply not. As much as we want Gilgamesh, the hero, to be very good or entirely bad, he is solidly both. As much as we want it to be a hero's journey, it isn't. As much as we want to assume that the gods were worshipped as infallible beings, that ancient people were unquestioningly devoted to their religion, they weren't. And as much as we want the epic to have a neat, 
happily ever after. It simply doesn't. Hi, and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly, and this is the finale of our four-part Epic of Gilgamesh special. In the previous three episodes, we spanned the course of human history, including the invention of civilization, writing, and farming, as well as who Gilgamesh and Enkidu, the stars of the dang thing, were. Today, we're going to talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh itself, and why I think it should be considered one of the greatest love stories ever written. Now, I am not normally a fan of tragedies. You should probably know this, considering I both host a whole-ass podcast about romance novels and I write them. Our modern definition of a romance novel generally involves two things, romance and a happily ever after. Now, okay, there is a whole heck of a lot of gray area here. We're talking a Pacific Ocean-sized stretch of wishy-washy gray. A whole subgenre of romance is built on twisted, dark, and otherwise not conventionally sweet relationships. Think, I fell in love with my stalker and anything involving the mafia. There is romantic suspense, which generally involves intense peril and life-or-death drama. There's even a hotly debated subgenre of romance that doesn't necessarily end with the couple being together for a number of reasons. Not all happily ever afters look the same, but they do all end happy, whatever that means for those involved. The Epic of Gilgamesh doesn't end happily. It is not, by our way of thinking, a romance novel. It is, however, a love story. Last week, I discussed the trouble with translation and how the views of the translator often color how we perceive a story. Here's an example for you. Let's say that some ancient unnamed poet wrote the lines, I loved the cup. I used the cup. I filled the cup. Okay, now imagine that the language used to write the poem was lost for 2,000 years. Somebody from a completely different culture manages to crack the code and decipher the language bit by bit using context and the occasional keystone words, or repeated, easily identifiable phrases like king and star and great. Then, one very nice day, someone plops those lines of poetry on this person's desk. We may think, hey, that's pretty clear cut. It's about a cup. But imagine that we don't know all the different uses for the word cup. What if we only translated it as, say, vessel? We can't confirm that it strictly meant cup. So it could mean any number of things. Holder, vessel, container, even something more symbolic like womb or heart. Here's how the lines would change. I loved the vessel. I used the vessel. I filled the vessel. Really changes the vibe, right? Now imagine that the translation is put in front of another scholar and a literature professor and an archaeologist who recently excavated, say, a temple. 
How might they interpret that poem now? Well, it's an expression of spirituality, they may say. The vessel is the soul, and the filling is an act of worship that enriches the soul. It's an erratic poem, they could argue. The vessel is a woman. The using is intercourse. The feeling is, well, you know. It's about a fucking cup, you scream from a great distance. Get the picture? Translation is incredibly difficult, even when it's for a language we know and speak fluently today. It's almost freakishly difficult for an extinct language, particularly when we get to murky cultural subjects like religion and expressions of sexuality. If something doesn't necessarily align with what the translator is expecting or wants to see, they may subconsciously or consciously even translate the work in a way that fits their narrative. Now, let's talk about the romance in the Epic of Gilgamesh from this perspective. It is a story that is written in one fully dead language and another mostly dead language, translated mostly, from a straight white male perspective. Need me to drive that home for you just a little bit more? Okay, here's a fact for you. Gilgamesh was first translated into English in 1872. Now, I'm just spitballing here, (laughs) but uh, I don't think that the dusty-ass British dudes in the fucking 1800s were the most inclined to read homoerotic themes in the story that quote-unquote confirms their ideas of a biblical worldview. So here's what I'm going to say to all of the folks out there who think that Gilgamesh has been definitively translated and that any queer themes within it are a modern influence. Munch my whole ass. There is no definitive translation, and every single word that you read is passed through the filter of the translator's experience, context, and prejudices. And yet, even with all that, the one consistent theme that makes it through? The goddamn romance. Like I said, translation is imperfect and colored by what we want to see particularly when it's passed down for so long through so many hands and translated in so many different ways. I choose to look at the Epic of Gilgamesh through a romantic lens. I believe that Stephen Mitchell chose to do the same. This doesn't mean that it's right, but why not, right? If you believe that Gilgamesh is only about the man who is its namesake, I don't blame you. If you think that the story is about the fruitless search for immortality, I get it. That's what we've been told. That's what I thought. After reading it for the first time, I thought to myself, the only reason this isn't called the Epic of Gilgamesh and Enkidu is because Gil is the only one who survived. From Stephen Mitchell's Gilgamesh. He had seen everything. 
had experienced all emotions, from exaltation to despair, had been granted a vision into the great mystery, the secret places, the primeval days before the flood. He had journeyed to the edge of the world and made his way back, exhausted but whole. He had carved his trials on stone tablets, had restored the holy Inanna temple and the massive wall of Uruk, which no city on earth can equal. See how its ramparts gleam like copper in the sun. Climb the stone staircase, more ancient than the mind can imagine. Approach the Inanna temple, sacred to Ishtar, a temple that no king has equaled in size or beauty. Walk on the wall of Uruk, follow its course around the city, inspect its mighty foundations, examine its brickwork, how masterfully it is built. Observe the land it encloses, the palm trees, the gardens, the orchards, the glorious palaces and temples, the shops and marketplaces, the houses and the public squares. Find the cornerstone, and under it, the copper box that is marked with his name. Unlock it. Open the lid. Take out the tablet of lapis lazuli. Read how Gilgamesh suffered all and accomplished all. The story is written in the past tense. It opens with that gorgeous prologue. It pulls no punches. It tells you in no uncertain terms that our hero is, in fact, no hero. He is a man who experiences the greatest suffering and lives through his trials to become a better man, one who shepherds his people into a better future. We begin here with a glimpse into what is to come. And then we are tipped directly into the story. You already know how that begins. Gilgamesh is out of control. He is huge, handsome, radiant, perfect. And yet he terrorizes the citizens of his kingdom. His lust for life, food, violence, sex, wealth, are too much for even the devoted people of Rukh. So they cry out to the gods to help them, and in answer, Enlil tasks the goddess Aruru to create Gilgamesh's equal, who might knock him down a peg or two, so they don't have to. Enkidu is created, also huge, handsome, radiant, perfect, and left to wander in the wilds with the animals until he is spotted by a trapper. To tame the wild man, the trapper enlists the help of Gilgamesh, who then recruits Shamat, an erotic priestess of Ishtar, to seduce him into leaving his wild life behind. Enkidu follows Shamat, and in an effort to impress her, he decides to challenge this great and awful king people just won't shut up about. They set off for Uruk and set into motion a story that will echo for thousands of years, long after the bones of Uruk's citizens are dust. Its language is extinct, and its gods little more than faded memory baked in clay. 
in the previous episode, this is where we stopped. I mentioned that it might have seemed strange that Gilgamesh would go to such lengths to tame a wild man rather than simply kill him, which is his usual MO before and after the events of the epic. I also mentioned that there might be more going on here than Enkidu or the Trapper realize. I've said several times that Gilgamesh and Enkidu are soulmates. This is not just because they are quite literally mirror images of one another, but because of what Shamat tells Enkidu after he announces his intention to challenge good old Gil. Even before you came down from the hills, you had come to Gilgamesh in a dream. And she told Enkidu what she had heard. He went to his mother, the goddess Ninsun, and asked her to interpret the dream. I saw a bright star. It shot across the morning sky. It fell at my feet and lay before me like a huge boulder. This boulder, this star that had fallen to earth, I took it in my arms. I embraced it and caressed it the way a man caresses his wife. Then I took it and laid it before you. You told me that it was my double, my second self. And to this, Ninsun replies, in no uncertain terms. He will be your double, your second self, a man who is loyal, who will stand at your side through the greatest dangers. Soon you will meet him, the companion of your heart. Your dream has said so. Now, that all seems pretty damn cut and dry to me. I will, however, disclose to you that the version of Gilgamesh I've been quoting for the last three and a half episodes is not a direct one. Stephen Mitchell used a variety of direct word-for-word translations as his research material and then rewrote the story in a traditional spoken epic style. This is my favorite translation because I think it adheres to the tradition of Gilgamesh, passed down through so many hands that edited and swapped and changed and erased its contents over the centuries. It is true that he could be leaning hard into the romantic interpretation here, but I think that's forgivable, considering the content. Honestly, I don't know how anyone could see any version of the way a man caresses his wife or companion of your heart any other way, frankly. That's the trouble with translation. I might be seeing what I want to see. Stephen Mitchell might be seeing what he wants to see. We don't know if it's right. We will never know if it's right. But I don't think there's anything wrong with perceiving the story through a romantic lens. So, they're soulmates. And interestingly, Gilgamesh seems to know this. We get the feeling that he sent the trapper and Shamat out on a mission to retrieve the man he knew, no doubt from his description alone, was destined to be his greatest love. Hilariously, their first meeting goes about as well as can be expected. (laughs) Enkidu and Shamat head to the city where he intends to crash a wedding that Gilgamesh will, uh, attend 
because uh, all good wedding guests to flower the bride, right? <laughs> of course, when Gil gets there, ready to get his deflowering on with his monumental wang, who's blocking the door? It's Anki-Doo, of course. They don't do a whole lot of talking after that. Uh, mostly, they destroy a not insignificant stretch of the city in a sweaty, erotic wrestling match for the ages. You know, normal shit. By the end of it, they are both smitten and devoted for life. Anki acknowledges that Gil is the superior man, but Gil himself marvels at Anki, the only man who has ever even come close to matching him. They simply delight in one another. Together, they are whole. Together, they are full of incomprehensible joy. Together, they are a disaster waiting to happen. Remember how, way back in episode two, I talked about how I don't think Gilgamesh's story really matches up with the hero's journey? Theoretically, when he and Anki do meet, he should learn to temper himself and his lusts. That was Enkidu's entire purpose. Except it doesn't happen that way. Sure, they're both overjoyed to be with one another and immediately join their lives, but Gilgamesh hasn't gotten any better. We don't get any hint that he's stopped deflowering brides or wrestling poor, regular-sized youths until they're bloody mush. In fact, we don't get any hints about their time together at all. They meet, they fall in love, and then page break. The story begins again some indeterminate time later, when Gilgamesh has apparently gotten restless and wants to cause some trouble. For seemingly no reason at all, he declares that he is going to travel to the cedar forest and kill the monster that dwells there. Of course, Enkidu is supposed to come with him. Remember when I said that Gil is as dumb as a box of rocks? Wow, we really see that here. Literally every single person who hears this plan balks. Why would he do this? Humbaba isn't hurting anybody. Besides, he was put there by the gods to guard the forest. Yeah, he's monstrous, but like, so? Killing him will be a slight to the gods and useless to boot. Why do it? Everybody, even Enkidu, tries to talk him out of this absurd plan. But Gilgamesh won't hear it. He effectively calls Enki a coward and the rest of his court a bunch of wusses. Resigned, they all agree to support him. They don't really have a choice. One of the most arresting scenes in the entire epic is a moment just before they leave Uruk for the cedar forest. Both men stop by Ninsun's temple, where she actually, like, lives, I suppose, to get her blessing. She is distraught knowing with a goddess's and a mother's intuition that the journey will end horribly. But she can't stop her son. Instead, she does something heart-wrenching. After praying for Gilgamesh's safe return from this absolutely foolish mission, the poem states, Dear child, she said, You were not born from my womb. But now I adopt you as my son. She hung a jeweled amulet around Enkidu's neck 
as a priestess takes in an abandoned child, I have taken Enkidu as my own son. May he be a brother for Gilgamesh. May he guide him to the forest and bring him home. Enkidu listened. Tears filled his eyes. He and Gilgamesh clasped hands like brothers. Remember that Enkidu has never had a mother. He's never had a family. In this moment, he has both. When I read it, I imagined two men standing before her in a temple, incense in the air, their hands clasped. I pictured her saying the solemn words, formally accepting him into the family as Gilgamesh's companion, laying the amulet on his chest, and I said to myself, oh my god, they got married. It, it fucking got me, y'all. It got me so, so bad. It's still getting me, obviously. To be honest, we usually get a scene like this immediately before something truly terrible happens. It is that last bright spot of joy before the curtains of darkness close. The Epic of Gilgamesh, however, because it's a wily bastard, doesn't deliver the blow quickly. <laughs> it waits. It makes you sit in it, knowing the pain is coming, dreading it with every step they take away from Uruk, just as Ninsun probably felt grief tighten her throat again and again as she watched their figures fade into the distance. Enkidu and Gilgamesh go on a long journey to reach the cedar forest. During that time, Gilgamesh has a lot of nightmares. <laughs> Ones that he usually begs Enkidu to interpret. Being the people pleaser our boy is, he assures Gil that, don't worry, they mean the exact opposite of what the audience knows they do. That disaster is coming, that grief will be the companion of Gilgamesh's heart and that somewhere inside of him, he must know it too. They've reached the cedar forest, and both men, at different times, chicken out. Humbaba is a scary motherfucker. He sounds pretty hot, to be honest. And when Enkidu sees him, he can't go any farther. Gil tells him to be brave, to be the man he knows he is, and so Enkidu sucks up his terror and joins him. And then, the same thing happens to our fearless Gil. Enkidu has to remind him that this was all his idea, and that he is a brave king, and that if he wishes to make his name as a hero who will be remembered, he has to see this through. In his desperation to please Gilgamesh, Enkidu encourages him to do the thing that he believes he wants, and the thing that will destroy them both. What proceeds is a... Really, truly awful interlude. Like, it's a bad look for both men. <laughs> a really bad look. Humbaba, monstrous as he may be, isn't doing fucking anything wrong. <laughs> he's just a forest guardian. And these chumps have to come to, to, to what? To what? What do they want? Pick a fight? Why? 
because they want to be remembered as warriors who go around starting shit when it isn't necessary? I do. What? Humbaba gives them the chance to leave peacefully, though he taunts them for coming at all. Then they fight. It's... it's bad. <laughs> Humbaba, though massively strong and brimming with supernatural powers, is pinned down by Gilgamesh and Enkidu. There's some godly intervention there. They've won a bloody battle they never should have picked. Humbaba is subdued. They should let him go. They don't. Remember that Humbaba was placed in the forest as a guardian by the gods. He is favored, and he pleads his case as Gilgamesh holds a knife to his throat. He says that he has done nothing more than his job, and that he doesn't wish to die. Gilgamesh wavers, uncertain, but again, Enkidu wishes to please. Overzealous, eager for approval, he goads his lover into finishing the job. Humbaba, innocent and at their mercy, is brutally murdered. Immediately, both men feel, shall we say, iffy about this. But they both shrug, say they will use the cedar from the forest to build some cool shit for the gods in penance, and saunter on home. Everything is fine, it's fine. It's just a little moita. You get the feeling that they are stubbornly ignoring the dead body in the room, metaphorically speaking, and determined to enjoy themselves until the weird vibe passes. They return to Uruk, as heroes, yay! It's all very chill and normal. <laughs> Just killed a guy, whatever. He only begged for his life like a little bit. It was fine. Cried like a bitch, whatever. <laughs> that is, of course, until a, a, a party crasher arrives. See, the goddess Ishtar takes one look at sexy murdering Gilgamesh and says, Yes, I would like all 17 feet of that man. Thank you very much. I get it. She doesn't care that he's taken, which is honestly pretty rude. But Ishtar isn't really one for monogamy anyway, so maybe it's just her thing. Remember all that erotic poetry I read you in the first episode? Yeah. Well, she uh, doesn't stick with Demuzi. She doesn't stick with any man, apparently. Gilgamesh knows this, and he even knows the sad fates of the men she has discarded. We don't have all of those stories, but the context he gives us is enough to understand that Ishtar was well known for her ill-fated trysts. It's not her freedom with sexuality that he doesn't like. It's the fact that her paramours tend to end up as frogs or whatever. Besides, he's taken. So when she tries to seduce him, Gilgamesh turns her away. When she demands to know why, again, rude, he starts out polite enough but being the man that he is, he doesn't stay that way. He lists off the many men whose lives she has ruined and says with the utmost conviction that he ain't gonna end up that way, no thank you very much. Ishtar does not, shall we say, take this well. She is nothing if not a proud goddess, and when her pride is wounded, she is not at her best. 
Furious at the perceived insult, she goes running to her father and Leo, crying and screaming that Gilgamesh has insulted her. When she recounts what he said, Enlil isn't exactly sympathetic to his daughter. He replies, Well, uh, I don't know, honey. Isn't he right? Ishtar doesn't take that well either. <laughs> After more screaming and crying, he reluctantly hands over the bowl of heaven when she demands it. She intends to take the huge, and I mean fucking huge, bowl to destroy Uruk in retaliation for the slight. Except, when she unleashes the Bull of Heaven on Uruk, Gilgamesh and Enkidu straight up kick his ass. Even worse, in the throes of their victory, they disrespect both the Bull and Ishtar by flinging one of the severed legs at Ishtar's whole ass face. It just... Y'all, it just smacks her right in the schnoz. Like, real slapstick shit over here. Hilarious. At this point, the gods really have no choice but to intervene. Not only did they slaughter Humbaba, but they killed the Bull of Heaven and desecrated the corpse. They really, really insulted Ishtar, too. Someone's gotta pay. At first... I was struck by the unfairness that it is Enkidu that pays the ultimate price for their transgressions. He is new to the world, created by the gods themselves and only following Gilgamesh's lead. He knows nothing. He wishes to please. How come he dreams of sitting in the dark, dusty room with forgotten souls fester, lingering on for all eternity in absolute silence? How come the gods chose him to die, and not Gilgamesh, the instigator of every crime? Here's my romance take on it. While Enkidu is technically responsible for coercing Gilgamesh into murdering Humbaba, he also threw the leg, by the way, that's not why he is selected to die. They choose him because his loss will hurt Gilgamesh more than his own death. And it, it, it does. As Enkidu wastes away, Gilgamesh is rendered helpless for the first time in his life. He rages. He is utterly inconsolable. He refuses to acknowledge the reality of the situation, even as Enkidu himself reluctantly comes to accept it. They are being torn apart when they have only just found each other. And when he does finally die, it is devastating. Oh, man, I cry every time I read Enkidu's death scene. It's so tough. It's so, so tough. Gilgamesh's grief is so palpable. It feels like he's reaching out through time to shake you, to demand answers. Why was Enkidu taken from him? Why couldn't they have more time? And with almost childlike ignorance... Why does it hurt so bad 
The reality of death is ever-present in the epic of Gilgamesh. It is fundamental to teaching Gilgamesh that he is not above anyone else. He cannot defeat death. He cannot wrestle it into submission, and he cannot reject its existence. It doesn't matter that he refuses to accept that Enkidu is gone. Eventually, his body begins to rot, and flies crawl out of his nose, and he is forced to face the loss. And Gilgamesh is forced to face the loss. Death is absolute, even for a king. This knowledge traumatizes him. I think that bit gets lost when people analyze the story. They see the words, king on the hunt for immortality, and think, oh, he's going to get his ass handed to him by fate because he's a narcissist. He's scared of death, and he's an egomaniac, and by the end of the story, he's going to have to deal with that. Like, yeah, sure, but also... (laughs) I don't know, man. Death is fucking scary. (laughs) It just is. And Gilgamesh, for all his grandeur and ferocity, is just as ignorant as Enkidu was. Just as boyish. This is his first glimpse of mortality, and it is piled on top of the loss of the companion of his heart. The man he loved. His perfect match. His everything. Perhaps his reaction is less about his desire to live forever and more to do with the desperate need to soothe the pain, to process the trauma of his loss. Before we get to what I feel is the epilogue of this love story, I want to share a part of the epic that I feel gets overlooked. It is Enkidu's funeral. At the first glow of dawn, Gilgamesh sent out a proclamation. Blacksmiths, goldsmiths, workers in silver, metal, and gems, create a statue of Enkidu, my friend. Make it more splendid than any statue that has ever been made. Cover his beard with lapis lazuli, his chest with gold. Let obsidian and all other beautiful stones, a thousand jewels of every color, be piled along with silver and gold and sent on a barge down the Euphrates to Great Walt Uruk for Enkidu's statue. I will lay him down on a bed of honor. I will put him on a royal bier on my left. I will place his statue in the seat of repose. The princes of the earth will kiss its feet. The people of Aruk will mourn him, and when he is gone, I will roam the wilderness with matted hair in a lion skin. Gilgamesh then gathers his wealth, his oxen, his ivory, and his gold, and he pays tribute to every one of the gods he has offended. He lays out each gift and names the gods one by one, begging them to see to Enkidu's comfort, to make sure he is not afraid, to walk with him somewhere comfortable and warm. 
when his gifts are gone and his prayers exhausted. Gilgamesh sheds his finery and sets out into the world Ankidu came from. The Wilderness. He roams, and he half-heartedly seeks out a man who holds the secrets to defeating death. His grief is endless. No longer is he huge, handsome, radiant, perfect. He is sallow-skinned, skinny, wasted by heartbreak. Those who see him cower. No one kisses his feet. No one can comprehend the loss they see in his eyes. On his way, he encounters several supernatural beings who inquire as to his horrific state. When he explains what he has lost, he is given a familiar refrain. Well, that's death. There's nothing for it. Best you can do is, um, live well, my guy. He hates this in the visceral way that anyone who has lost someone hates a platitude. Yes, death is our reality. Yes, it is inevitable. Yes, living a good life without regrets really is the only answer. But by God, not one fucking person wants to hear that when they're grieving. For example, this is what the immortal man, the survivor of the Great Flood, Utnapishtim, has to say to Gilgamesh about death. Spoilers, the old man is kind of a dick. Yes, the gods took Enkidu's life. But any man's life is short. At any moment, it can be snapped like a reed in a cane break. The handsome young man, the lovely young woman, in their prime, death comes and drags them away. Though no one has seen death's face or heard death's voice, suddenly, savagely, death destroys us, all of us, old or young. And yet we build houses and make contracts, brothers divide their inheritance, conflicts occur, as if this human life lasted forever. The river rises, flows over its banks, and carries us all away like mayflies floating downstream. They stare at the sun, then all at once, there's nothing. It's such a human exchange, this moment of understanding and misunderstanding. We've all been there, I think. No one knows what to say to the grieving. Not really. And the grieving don't know what to say to themselves. This is what I mean when I say that the rest of the story is nothing but an epilogue. Every line is about Gilgamesh attempting to understand his loss. It is about the grief he feels, the useless search for answers for something to do, not his fruitless search for immortality. He's heartbroken. He doesn't know how to fix it. (laughs) All he can comprehend is a quest because he has nothing else worth living for anymore. There is, however, some fun stuff at the end of the story, I promise. There is a race under a mountain where the sun sets each night that nearly ends up with Gilgamesh being barbecued. There are lobster people! There are rock monsters who operate a boat. There's a long story from Utnapishtim where he describes the Great Flood. You know, the one that all those dudes, you know, in the 1800s were really interested in for, you know, Bible reasons or whatever the fuck. And how the gods royally fucked up when they killed literally the entire planet. 
in the end. He cannot give Gilgamesh the secret to immortality, though. It was a one-time deal from the gods for the only survivor of the Flood. Utapishtim's wife, apparently, doesn't count towards that number. Color me surprised. As a consolation prize, he tells Gil where to get a plant that, when consumed, will return him to a state of perfect youth. It won't keep him alive, but it will make everyone's sexy mid-twenty-somethings, apparently. So, you know, basically Twilight. So Gilgamesh heads home with the plant, intending on testing it on an old man first. He doesn't trust the crotchety old asshole who pitched him, and honestly, I don't blame him. This at least feels something like a win. Of course, the epic has one more fuck you in store for us. See, on his way back to Uruk, Gilgamesh realizes he needs to become human again. He stops by a body of water to bathe and figure out how to look civilized once more. While he's washing up, a funky little snake slithers on by, snatches up the plant, and then... It's gone. It's just gone. That's it. Gilgamesh is a failure. He doesn't return to his city with the secret to immortality or youth. He is simply older and tired and has seen all and accomplished all, but most importantly, suffered all. His love has not died, but has simply settled into a new form. It makes him a better man, one who brings wisdom to his people rather than violence. This is his tribute to Enkidu. This is the lesson that will stand the test of time. Gilgamesh finally learned compassion. The point of the Epic of Gilgamesh is not that he sought immortality. It is not a hero's journey. It is that he loved and that he lost. And though the pain never goes away, it is what makes him at long last, human. The point is, it's a love story. Thank you for listening to the finale episode of our Gilgamesh mini-series. You can find all the resources I've used for research listed in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed writing it and recording it. If you haven't yet, please do give the Epic of Gilgamesh a chance. I promise you won't regret it. If you'd like to check out more of my work, you can also find the links to my books in the notes. My newest book, Empire, all about a hot vampire assassin with a nice house and an extremely smart, lovable witch who wants him to bite her, uh, releases January 10th and is up for pre-order now. Check it out if you like. In the meantime, KOT will be taking a short holiday break. We'll be back with new non-Gilgamesh episodes starting January 11th. See you then. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.